Hello, everybody, and welcome to Best Seat on the Couch, the podcast where we educate Marcus on Hayao Miyazaki films. My name is Alex. I'm Iris. I'm Marcus. And I'm Michael. And today, we are talking about the Studio Ghibli film Howl's Moving Castle. Directed by Hayao Miyazaki, the film premiered in September 2004 and was the 14th film released by the studio. The film is loosely based on the 1986 novel by the same name, written by Diana Wynne-Jones, and follows Sophie Hatter, a young woman who encounters the enigmatic wizard Howl in her hometown. However, Sophie is put under a curse by the jealous Witch of the Wastes, which causes her to become a 90-year-old woman, and she sets out into the wastes to find a way to end her curse. She soon stumbles upon Howl's Moving Castle, a contraption that wanders the wastes and enters uninvited, making herself a self-appointed cleaning lady for the castle. The film has received critical acclaim for its visuals and themes, and is one of the most financially successful films in Japanese history, grossing $190 million domestically and $239 million worldwide on a, two, on a $24 million budget. And... As always, there will be spoilers. Now, I think Howl's Moving Castle is the Studio Ghibli film that I have watched the most out of all the other ones. And I think as a consequence of that, it is the only Studio Ghibli film whose story I can coherently remember. (laughs) <laughs> as opposed to all the other ones that fade from my memory about 10 minutes after I turn the TV off. Uh, but yeah, I I grew up watching this film a lot. Uh, I think it was uh, on like the Toonami uh, 9 o'clock shows on Cartoon Network. Also just watching it at my friend's house. I think almost everyone I was close friends with in like middle school or elementary to middle school had a copy of Howl's Moving Castle in their house. And that was just like the go-to film. Uh, so I can remember the story beat by beat. And while I was watching it uh, with Iris, I was just like calling out moments like, Oh yeah, this is going to happen here. This is going to happen now. Um, when I, I think it has to be one of, if not my most favorite, one of, my favorite Hayao Miyazaki films in out of all of them. I think just the visuals are stunning, uh, especially the background art. And a lot of the scenes are just full of visual information. Um, the cities really do feel alive and almost bejeweled in in their detail. And I, I always have a soft spot um, for old ladies in uh, media. And so I love old lady Sophie. Uh, we'll get around to this. I love the Witch of the Waste when she becomes like her older self. I, I just love how Hayao Miyazaki uh, has like created the story. But what about the rest of y'all? Uh, what are your experiences with Howl's Moving Castle? And uh, yeah, what were your impressions of it? Okay, I'll start. I need to share something that I just learned by going to the Wikipedia page of Howl's Movie Castle. So, it was, apparently, in 2006, it was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Yeah. Awesome. It didn't win, though. Guess what won? 
Wallace and Gromit curse the werewolf. Wait, are you serious? This is the perfect segue. I'm so glad you mentioned this, Michael. I'm going to smack an Academy motherfucker. <laughs> Holy shit. Hey, I yeah, mean, there it's, is, a good movie. it's a good movie. There are no coincidences. Yeah. In, look, I love Wallace and Gromit. Don't get me wrong. I love Wallace and Gromit. In what universe is Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, a superior movie hey, Iris, to maybe Howl's Moving subconsciously, Castle? This, that moment stuck in your, bra- your brain as a child, and that's why we're doing it right after our Wallace You think I knew or cared what the Academy Awards were in 2006? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, God no. So yeah, so I watched this for the first time at the aforementioned Hayao Miyazaki Club that we have talked about many times in the show. <laughs> Basically, uh, yes. we had a club in like middle school. We watched Miyazaki movies. Um, so that was the first time I saw this, and I remember really liking this one when I saw it. Like it felt so like it it, it um like bef- the only i'm pretty sure at least the only miyazaki film that i had watched before the high miyazaki club was spirited away just because it was like huge in america when it came out right but this one uh, well obviously huge everywhere as well as in america it like it, it it almost when i watched it i was like oh it's so good it's like it's it in some ways it almost felt better than spirited away um However, <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give a hot take. It's Someone's not a hot take. Here. It's just it's okay. just my opinion. Oh my so hot I rewatch take before the rest of us even have a chance to. I re- I rewatched this uh, earlier today. I think that the first half of this movie is like perfect. I think that it really falls off in the second half, <laughs> and this is not to say that this is bad this is a bad film i still hold this in high regards like it's in the top five miyazaki films of all time for me like i I still think it's better than kiki's delivery service fight me um (laughs) but i feel like the beginning has so much like vibe and atmosphere and when you get to learn and join sophie in discovering the magic of Howl and his castle and Calcifer and all of these things. It's so, like, uh, exciting. And then I feel like the movie, it, it does, like, hmm, how, how do I want to say this? I think the movie has trouble focusing on what it wants to say, basically. Like, I think that Spirited Away, while through all of its meandering, which Halsey Castle also does, has a very like clear message, in my opinion. And this one, this 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 film, there is a message in there, but I do think it's it's much more muddled, it's much more vague, and as a result, the ending kind of feels less like it's a satisfying sort of conclusion to Howl and Sophie's story. And it kind of feels like things start happening and then things end. If that makes any sense. I would love to hear what everyone else thinks about it. Overall, I still really like this movie. I do think on a second rewatch, I feel like the second half specifically specific. It's specifically after they moved the castle to Sophie's hometown or whatever. That's like that's kind of where the sort of mystery of Howl and the stuff kind of falls apart for me. So, 
thank you for calling me out at the in the intro, Alex. I appreciate <laughs> it. Everybody does need to be reminded that I don't watch Miyazaki films or have not watched Miyazaki films. Also, thank you, Michael, for reminding me that I, yes, was not present in this uh, Hayao Miyazaki club in middle school. Thank you for the invite. Anyways, uh, enough salt aside. Uh, I actually really enjoyed this movie, but... Uh, Michael, after after giving your take, I will I will comment on a couple of those because I did have some of the same feelings about it. First of all, I think it's really interesting. We haven't necessarily watched Miyazaki films like in order of release, like, but we have kind of gravitated more towards the older Miyazaki films uh, on this podcast first, and then I, I assume we're gonna kind of we're just gonna kind of meander our way through the next you know the rest of them, but. This one was the first one that really felt modern to me. Not and like it still had a, a you know a very quaint Miyazaki-ness about it. It's, it's a very you know it's still two thousand four. It's still older, but I could tell that the the animation quality was significantly better, uh, and I could tell that the colors were more vibrant. It just felt like it was it was a step above. Which for Miyazaki movies, as I watch them for the first time, I'm continuously blown away by how amazing they are and how beautiful they are. So. Uh, I I can't stress enough about how how gorgeous this movie is and just how how you know Michael has described the first half of this of this movie really it's wondrous uh, you know kind of seeing the the flying machines and you know the beautiful blue oceans and green fly, you know grass meadows and stuff and uh, I I really also enjoyed how they animated the 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 castle itself Howl's moving castle um, because it's basically like. It's like 30 layers of individual like parts of the castle all superimposed on top of each other and they all move in their own way and it I you know I've seen that before but I haven't seen that in a lot of animated movies before and it really it stood out to me and I think it was a really cool uh choice for them to animate it that way. Um as for the plot uh I think I think the the weakest moment of this movie for me was when they get to uh, Suleiman, yeah, uh, Madame Suleiman's palace. Like, I, first of all, the the sequence where they're both, you know, trying to trudge <laughs> up the stairs, hilarious. Like, I I was I really enjoyed that scene. Yeah. But as soon as they get to the the kind of I guess it's an illusion sequence with Suleiman, and there's kind of like you know how gets there, and there's a little bit of an exposition about how what the war, you know what the war significance is to the plot. Yes, there is a very strong anti-war message in this movie. That much is clear. How they fold that into how that relates to Sophie and how I think is a little weak because essentially they're going, uh, the, the, the war is happening and everybody kind of already knows it's like stupid and like a waste of resources and lives and time. And people are always like, Oh, you know, when is this war going to stop? Oh, they bomb something again. And then, you know, at the end of the movie, Suleiman's like, all right, let's just end this idiotic war. I'm, I'm kind of done. And it's just like, well, you, you know, that's yes, that's good. But you didn't like, there weren't many steps taken to justify to me you know, why ending the war at that moment suddenly was what you needed to do. And yes, the prince, you know, again, another shout out to uh, the uh, turnip head, the scarecrow, another great character that doesn't have any lines. Um, but, you know, the prince comes out and they're like, oh, okay, the prince is back. We can end the war now. It just didn't, it's it's almost as if like there were two or three missing puzzle pieces that I feel like would have really just nailed it if they had just kind of given them a little bit more, uh not necessarily exposition, but explanation as to how that kind of folds in. Um, 
but uh this is this was a really great movie and uh, you know before this podcast uh iris had made the joke or no i think it was michael who had made the joke that this was a coming of age movie and that was the only description that i would no, get that was, no, that was that you yeah i, I, I wouldn't speak so low joke. for that joke. Uh, i <laughs> <laughs> it's a coming of age story. Yeah, I... <laughs> shut the fuck up, please. Shut the fuck up. So I'll I'll end my summary there. Oh boy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else, 13 minutes into this episode, and I'm finally ready to talk about my first Let's experience. Go. Um, I actually, I tried to sneak in right after Michael, but Marcus, you were just so excited. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to make you salty again and <laughs> bring up the Hayao Miyazaki Club in middle school. Right. Um, this was actually in that Hayao Miyazaki Club. This was the very first Studio Ghibli movie I ever watched. And I think for that reason, in many ways, this movie is the quintessential Studio Ghibli film uh, more so than Spirited Away, uh, at least for me, you know, because it was that introduction to the world. And I think in many ways, it really truly does feel like to me it is at the center or near to the center. You know, perhaps Spirited Away has that that claim, but near to the center of the Venn diagram of the, you know, tonal and uh, subject, you know, space that Studio Ghibli uh, occupies. I personally, I love this movie, um, and I was not expecting to be the one with the moderate opinion about the nature of the narrative and how well it's constructed and how it flows from one place to another. I don't personally, I mean, there's so many other things to say, but this is sort of the hot take of the beginning of the episode, and so I want to directly address it. I don't personally feel like there's anything wrong with a story or confusing with a story or like lackluster per se. Uh, the way I phrased it to Alex uh, when we were watching it and and earlier today in conversation was that there's something sort of a little disjointed, a little ethereal about it, you know. It feels in some ways like the experience of Alice in Wonderland, if you will, where there's sort of a a, a childlike you know, wonder, but also a a, uh, a a subtle kind of danger to the world. Uh, and that reflects itself in this just unintuitive sort of twisting and and uh, oscillating way that the, the the narrative unfolds itself. You know, because there are certainly plenty of story beats that, like, sure, logically, I understand what is happening. You know, the, the events are not confusing. But in an intuitive sense, it doesn't vibe with what I imagine would be the next part in the story that they're trying to tell. I don't personally feel like it reads to me like it's confused about the story it's trying to tell, though. As I, I you know, the criticism that I've given to other uh, shows and movies that we talked about on this podcast, I, I, I think, ultimately... It is a story where not all of the details need to matter. And I'm not saying that, you know, their sort of fuzziness doesn't have an effect on, you know, the way that we we read this movie. I definitely, for me, I'm like, oh, wait, yeah, now they go into this part. Like, why, why are we now, like, there's, okay, we're going into the door, I guess. Uh, okay, she comes out of the door and Hal's just here, I suppose. What happened with the battle? Do we care about the battle? I guess we're, we're not caring about the battle. We're, we're talking about the heart now. 
okay, but now we're talking about the war later. You know, there's 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 definitely some of that. But I I want to be the person here who says that as much as that has like an effect on me, I do not think it's sort of the be all end all for this movie. And I think ultimately it feels very strong, feels very solid to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll I'll throw my two cents in here as well in this in this conversation. I, I'm also in the camp where perhaps it's because of no- nostalgic glasses or goggles um, that I I really do love this movie. Um, if if anything, just for its like themes and the presentation. But the way that I uh, consider this movie is it's kind of like a children's book you know the children's book you might have read when you were younger with the really detailed backgrounds uh with uh the toys upon toys stacked in the back kind of like the velveteen rabbit almost uh those kinds of books with um where all the the detail is put into the setting into the visuals and the story is just kind of there to uh like move you along through this world, um, show you the sights of this crazy, fantastical world. Uh, And I think because I consider it like that, I do tend to be more lenient with um, the fact that there is a war happening in the background, that we don't really focus too much on it because that's not really uh, what we want to focus on in this film. We want to take a look at the setting that we find ourselves, that Sophie finds herself in, the castle itself. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what I think about this movie. It, it is kind of just like uh, a visual treat, uh, all condensed into about 90 minutes of film. Um, but let's talk about favorite characters and moments. We might have mentioned a couple of them already. Um, and why don't I let you all go first? Because I feel like I've been taking up a lot of favorite characters and moments. So what are your favorite characters and moments in this film? Um, I'm sorry if I steal it. But it's got to be Calcifer, right? <laughs> <laughs> I will say, like, I had never listened to the dub before. Billy Crystal kills yeah, it. Absolutely. Calcifer. Really my kills. God. Oh my God, Calcifer is so damn good. Um, so it's it kind of tied in with favorite character and favorite moment. Favorite character, Calcifer for me. Favorite moments is Sophie cleaning the house. <laughs> it's um <laughs> one. It's just it just feels so satisfying to like watch that unfold. Just because like I don't know. It's it's you know it's like it's one of those things where it's like uh, it's getting cleaner, but I don't have to put in any effort. Therefore, it, it feels good. Um, and then all during that point, like. Sophie's angry. It's like, God, there's all this freaking crap here and like going everywhere. And Calcifer is like slowly dying in the corner. Um, yeah, that one, like that moment feels like, you know, it's, it's, uh, the family has begun to form. Like, you know, obviously the Witch of the Waste isn't there yet, but you know, Sophie is becoming the sort of like mother character to, to Markle, especially. And during that period also, we're seeing more of, like, the inner workings, not the inner workings, but, like, this sort of, uh, the, the mystery of the house, like, just previously we did the whole wheel thing where they, like, go to different places and Hal is, like, impersonating two different wizards and there's also this black wheel that we're like, oh, what is that? Um, and so you kind of get this sense that almost in, like, a metaphorical way, Sophie is, like, is is cleaning up the 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 hidden parts of of this house and like laying it to bear and so it's kind of inviting us in to be like 
Howell is no longer this sort of mysterious wizard person. He is more someone that we can sort of uh, be a part of, uh, be a part of their family, right? And so that 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 moment was like, yes, I always look forward to that part in particular. And then also also cost for almost dies, and it's and Billy Crystal freaking nails it. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I I didn't know who Billy Crystal was, so I looked up you know his IMDb page, and then I immediately saw Mike Wazowski from Monsters Inc. and I was like, oh, there's where that voice comes from. <laughs> Yeah, no, he did a really good job. Um, I think uh, what, I, I think it was also really interesting that Josh Hutcherson, as a child, voices Markle, which I don't remember seeing Josh Hutcherson in any like child voice acting. Uh, Wait, is Josh Hutcherson? He's uh, uh, the guy in uh, Hunger Games. Oh my He's god! Peter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Peter oh my god! Yeah, yeah. This is before he was like <laughs> post pubescent, I guess. It's kind of weird. Also, while we're while we're doing uh, little things, I was proud of uh, noticing this one. The dude who voices the prince, turnip head after his curse is lifted. Same guy who voices Red Arrow in Young Justice. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, little 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 factoid. Yeah, little little factoids here, and you know Christian Christian Bale's buttery Christian Bale voice. You know Bale. needs uh, needs, needs no, no introduction. introduction. Yep. Um, I think I think if I were to pick a favorite character. I would probably pick the easy one and say Sophie. I really like, I you know, Alex, you had mentioned that, you know, you have a soft spot for old ladies kind of taking center stage in, in movies. And, like, there was a, there was a brief blurb on this in the, on the Wikipedia page. But, like, old women don't usually get that spotlight in, in movies. They're, you know, they're relegated to that, you know, that homely, motherly, cleaning kind of person that just kind of supports the main character usually. But doesn't actually do anything besides offer sagely advice or you know nag your ear or something like this was a movie where you got to see like the the old lady of the house who's not really an old lady be like okay i am taking over this establishment this place is a fucking mess how you piece of shit i will write all of your wrongs and there that entire sequence as michael said was excellent to watch mainly because you are expending zero effort to see things become very clean which is very nice uh, and I've already gave, gave, given my uh, my favorite moment, which was uh, the scene where they were the Witch of the Wastes and Sophie, as well as uh, he and the dog, are trudging up those stairs. I think it was I wasn't expecting the Witch of the Wastes to be like a recurring, not a recurring character, but like a prominent character in the latter half of this movie. Like obviously she she set the curse, and I figured that Sophie would probably be looking her way or looking somewhere else, but in that same realm in order to kind of reverse the curse but once she found how i figured okay how was gonna do it you know the, the the witch of the waste is this nebulous antagonist that how kind of butts heads with occasionally and maybe we'll see her again but when she shows up at the you know it comes in at the uh, palace and is like oh yeah the king invited me here too because you know i'm a witch and i have to do these things and they're like oh and then so you think you know she's all regal and shit and then <laughs> as the sweat begins to pour down her literal fat rolls which was a disgusting sequence to be sure like then you kind of you watch this character literally melt away uh and be replaced with this you know truly disgusting creature as she you know grunts and groans up the up the stairway that entire sequence fostered quite a few emotions and reactions for me but i was overall very entranced with it so it was a good moment Honestly, the more I sit here and like listen to y'all recount these parts, the more and more I am reminded of something like Alice in Wonderland or like a children's, you know, fairy tale, you know, storybook type of thing. Um, 
it's it's a good it was a good comparison earlier, Alex, and I'm just getting the vibes the more I think about it. Um I mean, y'all have kind of touched on the main ones, right? Obviously, Calcifer is incredible. Obviously, Sophie is incredible. Um, I'm not sure who I would say is my favorite character. I mean, I, th- I feel like it's probably got to be Sophie, right? I mean, she's just so... Uh, uh, there's just, she's just You just love to root for her. You love to root for her. You love to be on her side. You know, it's not just that she wants, makes you want to be on her side. She makes it fun to like be like, yes, you go. I believe in you. Uh, you're amazing. You do this, you know? Uh, I think I think it was it's there's some fantastically bold choices with how they develop these character arcs you know the choice to not only have the witch of the waste remain to not remain the primary antagonist but then to actually like incorporate her into the family unit you know the choice for our our really only antagonist figure Solomon to show up in like one scene two at most and be like honestly largely indifferent to you know, her, her role as said antagonist, you know, uh, and because you two have taken my favorite two scenes, uh, I'll go for number three, uh, which for, for purely, you know, comedic reasons has got to be when Howell's hair gets dyed the wrong (laughs) color and he runs downstairs and throws a goddamn temper tantrum, which honestly, you know, like on the rewatch of this movie, all the, the sort of signs kind of pointing to the the childishness of Howell, the unnatural childishness as uh, contrasted with Sophie's, you know, unnatural age. It's not quite as like blam in your face, but like it's there it's really there. I mean, the temper tantrum he throws, the the uh the way his room is like all gaudy and glittery and like toys, literal like children's toys, you know, even in the midst of his like depression and rage and you know when he's a big bird monster there's just like toys stuck in the walls everywhere um yeah i don't know i just love how that all gets brought together so quickly by one very simple offhand line from calcifer at the end it's the heart of a child he has a literal meltdown (laughs) (laughs) what's the point of living if i can't be beautiful (laughs) yeah i mean I feel like I, I can't choose anyone else besides Sophie. She's such a good character. But I do want to throw a shout-out to... Uh, I personally love the Witch of the Waste post uh, post uh, her climbing the stairs when she starts to get incorporated into the family. Uh, and I I think some of my favorite scenes in the movie are tied to her interactions with Sophie once she starts living in the castle. I think uh, the scene of Sophie feeding her the porridge uh, while she's staring at Calcifer just, like, breaks my heart every single time. Um, When she's, like, talking to Sophie at night before she goes to bed, and she's like, you're in love, in, like, that, that, like, wistful old lady voice. And I think my, my favorite scene is... At the end, when after the castle has been destroyed, as they're uh, walking literally on like the floorboards and like two chicken legs of the castle, where uh, the witch of the waste is hunched over with Calcifer in her hands, and Sophie goes over to her and uh, she like begs for Hal's heart back, and I I can't 
remember the exact words in that scene, but the dialogue between the two is just so heartfelt. Like, Sophie embracing her, asking, like, begging her for it back, and the witch finally relenting what she's been searching for, like, this whole time, 50 years, or however long she's been uh, chasing after Hal and giving it to Sophie because of Sophie's emotions. I mean, that whole scene was just, just... It, it breaks my heart every single time. I love the dynamic between the two. Uh, it's It reminds me of my own grandmother, and I think that's a large part of it. But yeah, I love The Witch of the Waste um, as she starts living in Howl's Castle. Yeah, that particular scene, um, you know, she like tries to like, you know, squirrel it away from Sophie and instead of like grabbing for it, Sophie just like goes in and hugs her and The Witch of the Waste, uh, she's like, you want it that badly, don't you? And Sophie says, yes. And she's like, okay, then take good care of it. Mm-hmm. Ugh, <laughs> stab me in the heart. Ugh, <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, since we've been talking about Sophie for for so long, let's dive a little bit into her own character arc. Because, I mean, I th- there's a lot of great visual storytelling in her arc. Um especially how she ages and like de-ages throughout the entire series. I mean, she starts out as this, um, I guess you could say like old stereotypical old lady trapped in a young girl's body where she doesn't go out and have fun with all the other girls. She's just like working. She's a busybody, Um, and then she gets cursed by the witch of the waste. And as, as we see her progress through the story, we see her start to become less passive, start to stand up for herself more. And there's like so many subtle visual cues of her like uh, getting, getting younger as she grows in that way. But I wanted to know what the rest of you all thought about Sophie's character arc and if it was handled well, especially her, her growth to self-actualization to becoming, I mean, uh, and, adult woman, I guess you could say, quote-unquote, adult woman. Yeah, I mean, when I when I made the joke the other day, you know, that this was a coming-of-age story, uh, it actually was initially, like, a very sincere statement, you know, and uh, then the implications hit me a second later, and, you know, I turned it into a joke. But, like, I truly do, like, want to say that for Sophie, this story is about her finding herself. And about her finding her own inner strength, her own assertiveness, her own willingness to, you know, stand up tall and announce what she believes in and what she wants and strive towards those things. Uh, the big the big thing for me on this most recent rewatch that I, I had never really kind of paid attention to much before. And Alex, I'm going to give you full credit for uh, being the, the, the first person to point this out, was just how much the small scale changes in her apparent age really serve to tell the story of what's going on inside her head. Because even when she seems old, there are degrees of agedness that she fluctuates in between. You know, it's not just does she have white hair or not, it's how stooped is her back, how quavering is her voice, how firm is her grip, things like that. And if you're paying attention, as I was the the most recent time I watched this, you can really tell a lot about the little moments where she gains a little bit of courage, she gains a little bit of gumption, she gains a little bit of verve, I guess, if you will. Uh, and 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 
ever so slightly, you know, becomes just a little bit younger. You know, she can stand up without having to hunch over and eat a cane. You know, she can she can uh, do the chores without every single joint cracking. Uh, it is just so immensely satisfying, you know, to start us off with this character who we all feel, honestly, some amount of pity for, I feel, at the beginning of the movie. You know, it's not that she is a pitiable creature, I suppose, and you know, abject or you know, wretched or anything like that. It's just she seems so dispossessed of herself. And to watch her over the course of the movie have that, you know, quality, which she's very apathetic about uh, before the Witch of the Waste intervenes, uh, to have that quality thrown so directly in her face and then to see her begin to overcome that challenge. It is just so deeply gratifying to watch her become more her own person and to me, I think the, the phrase that sort of popped into my head uh, as I was watching this movie the other day um, was that the, 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 her youth comes back the more that she follows her heart, you know, and the whole movie feels like that's the core of it is learning to follow your heart, whether that's in love, whether that's in, you know, your convictions, your ideals, anything. Uh, and I think it's just, she's, you know, she's just a fantastic character to, to showcase that. And the age, the curse, is a fantastic metaphor all the way through. So, so expressive. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, I don't, I can't really add any more onto that. Um, you, you mentioned the sort of, like, subtle changes that she goes through as being very subtle yet powerful indicators of her state of mind, mood, things like that. I also wanted to add that a a couple moments in the film, there are drastic changes to her appearance. Like, she goes from being very young to being, like, very old very quickly. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly where it was. It's somewhere in the latter half of the movie. Oh, I I can tell you which parts. Um, So when she's confronting uh, Madame Suleiman, she goes from old to young. Yeah. Uh, and when she's at Howl's, like, childhood meadow, That's right. she goes from young to old very quickly. Right. And, like, those moments where it's, like, almost, like they, they barely cut away from it. They're, like, it's, it's just on her while it's happening. Those were, like, so powerful for me because it is, as you said, Iris, this sort of metaphorical way to show emotion, uh, both visually and uh, sort of um, and metaphorically, I guess. I'm just going to say that word a bunch of times. Um, <laughs> and yeah, it's just, it's so perfectly crafted and the transitions between her old and young visuals and also her old and young voice are like really perfectly there. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, because I had never seen the dub, I don't think, all the way through before earlier... Uh, this week, I was surprised about how well they blended the the two vocal performances together. You know, because it's not really so easy to tell when it's you know in Japanese. I don't speak Japanese, uh, but yeah, it was it was very smooth, which I was impressed by. Yeah, uh, I have not too much more to add. Uh, I liked the touch that they decided to keep her gray hair. Uh, I guess they call it silver at the end, or how it calls it silver at the end. I think that's you know, it's indicative that. Well, I think the first message is that Miyazaki didn't necessarily want to revert 
you know, the character that he had spent so much time building back to her young form, uh, as if, you know, it was erasing the, the totality of the curse. I think, you know, he wanted to emphasize that, you know, yes, the old lady that we were following this entire time was the main character and was, you know, struggling with her own battles, but was her own character and needed to stay that way. Uh, and it would be a disservice to kind of take that away from her and take her experience going through that movie away from her. So, I uh, I like that touch. That's all I'll say. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, I think it's a very it's a very classical, I think, kind of fairy tale storybook sort of touch, right? You know, if the the our our hero character goes through something, you know, dramatic or traumatic or life altering, and comes away with some kind of you know mark or change that perhaps is not you know immediately enviable but signifies you know the hardship they've gone through and the growth they've experienced and is beautiful for those reasons yeah and i, um, I liked how how was still like oh you have this beautiful silver hair now like they they made your hair sure. is the color of starlight yeah, he that, was so yeah. excited he was he was hella excited and you know contrasting that with the way he was literally having a meltdown over the fact that his hair was orange it's it's cool to see that that emphasis on that i guess or that they they decided to highlight that in a, in a line Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a tangible way to track Sophie's growth by the end of the movie, and yeah, I I love every second of it. Uh, uh, real quickly, I I did want to uh, have a quick discussion about the uh, animation and the the backgrounds uh, and the, of the setting of this movie, uh, and also throw in our obligatory talk about food in Miyazaki movies. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean. I mentioned this before at the beginning. I think, and you mentioned this too, uh, Marcus, this, the animation and the art of this movie seems, whether it's the technology or it's Miyazaki coming into his own as an animator, the the visuals are breathtaking. Um, I mean, from the jam-packed uh, children's toys in uh, Hal's room to the open areas of the flower meadow that he takes Sophie to. Every single scene is bursting with life. Um, and even the characters, like the hatting, the hat shop, each has their own little touch of these, uh, these moments of life. And I think one of the most impressive parts that I realized on the latest watch was when Sophie was going through the tunnel when she was having that dream uh, when she was visiting Hal in that bird monster form. But as she's walking through that tunnel with her little lantern light, you can see the individual pinpricks of light being reflected off of uh, the toys as she walks through. And they don't come in waves. They're like individual. Like uh, it's just one steady after another, after another, after another. And as I was watching that scene, I'm like, oh my God, how long did it take for them to animate this one scene? But yeah, this level of detail can be found all throughout this movie. And I love every single second of it. Uh, But yeah, real quick, your thoughts on uh, the animation and the visuals of this movie. Yeah, animation, fantastic. I wanted to give a shout out to the machines so i can't remember because like spirited away didn't really have that much machinery in it it had like the the building that i can't remember the name the 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 spot Uh, the bathhouse thank you the bathhouse and uh you could tell that it's the bathhouse was like textured very intentionally with all like the rusty pipes and stuff like that however Hayao miyazaki 
knows how to make freaking awesome flying machines. Like, by God, um, you know, ever since Castle in the Sky and Kiki's Liver Service to an extent. Um, a little bit. Um, first off, like, watching those freaking, like, undulating wings of the battleships as they, like, soar, especially the one that Hal brings down and only has one left, the other ones are gliding, like, <laughs> and as well as having, like, the weird flying mages, like, spurt out of this weird cloaca thing, like, it, it feels so unnatural, and it feels so, like, ugh, like, it's so gross to a certain extent. <laughs> Um, which really sort of brings out the the messages of the sort of anti anti warness of this film. To contrast, Hal's castle is so like vibrant. You can see like as it walks, it like moves its sort of balance point, and it's like all like kind of flopping over. And especially the scene, by God, the scene when uh, the the smaller version of his house is constructed out of the wreckage of their original house mm. like it's beautiful like all of these things are happening and like so many subtle details are like going everywhere things are being lifted up things are falling off it like it really feels almost like it happened like it, it was like practical um it yeah it, it has so much life into it especially when it has little chicken legs um <laughs> and so it's really cool to see that also used as contrast against the war machines of the war. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the animation really like gives life to the castle. Kind of, Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, in, in, at least in my experience, this is, you know, rapidly becoming the classical Miyazaki fashion where there is no spare detail, essentially. Uh, you know, even from minute one, you have this beautiful kind of, it's almost like a German style city, and I think it might actually be German, but, uh, you know, very kind of, you know, colorful, uh, you know, sloped tile roof house, houses and, you know, outdoor markets and lots of people out and about. But when the train comes by, you see this disgusting fume of black smoke just getting, you know, chugged out of it, and, you know. We've already discussed very strongly how, you know, Miyazaki's got a very environmentalist and pacifist eye to his, his work. And that's just another example, I guess. Every single time there's some sort of machinery uh, or, like, you know, large kind of transport on screen, it's always this gigantic black smoke that's not, you know, it's it's adding to the fact that, you know, the colors are vibrant and the scene around it. But it also, you know, it reminds you, you know, hey, this thing is polluting and that's bad kind of like that so I, I love that aspect i i think michael you were on on point with the especially those moments where a the original i thought the the moment when uh howl does the spell thing and like the entire uh castle itself is like rearranged yeah oh, you see yeah, like yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, there's like the, the pops and the 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 slurp and you know things are moving <laughs> into place and the toilet like kind of just appears out of nowhere and the sound design is just as important for those scenes as the animation is, and they nailed the sound design on every single one of those. That's also really critical when, you know, the original castle collapses, and then when the smaller castle is born out of the wreckage, it's just, it literally sounds like someone dumping, like, a, a, a 
a trash bin of refuse onto the ground and that's what they <laughs> used to record it when the the new castle comes out it, it's great yeah it's i i'm continuously amazed and to say that you know every time i watch a miyazaki movie i am i see something new i see something that's even more amazing than the last one it's it's uh there's no other movie not series no other string of movies like it i guess yeah i think the only thing i'll add to all this because uh you two have uh covered most of everything I could possibly say about this, is that I also want to just draw some attention towards and some give some praise towards the, I guess, the contrasting scenes. Because a lot of this movie is very, very bright, very colorful, very popping, very vibrant. And the moments where it's not, I think, are therefore really striking. And in particular, basically every time Howell is in the bird form you know whether that's flying above the just absolute bloodshed and chaos of you know the battlefield and you know it's all blacks and reds and oranges and blood and grit and uh, uh death you know or it's you know the the sort of more magical side of things it's his room you know these dark tunnels descending into the house, you know, like an abandoned mine shaft or the, the, the blackness, you know, there's this void behind the door that Sophie travels through. Um, I think they make really fantastic use sort of just contrast on the scale of the entire narrative rather than within a single shot or within a single scene. You know, it, it, it just really highlights those moments. I mean, and there's this, um, If you, you know, go online and you and you, you take a look around, there is a lot of, uh, you know, discussion you can find about, you know, Studio Ghibli films and the concept of ma, I believe it's pronounced. And I'm pretty sure we talked about this before in one of our episodes, you know, the quiet spaces uh, in, in the Studio Ghibli films, you know, where our characters, you know, pause and reflect and just breathe for a minute. And I think in some ways, although this may be a stretch, I think in some ways, some of the like just big visual contrast here, the darker, quieter moments kind of serve as like a visual ma, if you will, a break from the vibrant and the magic and the sparkles and the shining and the colors and the big moving, you know, the airships and the castles and everything. Um, there's something really powerful in the stillness and the darkness of these moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and and let's let's wrap up this conversation with a discussion on the villains of this movie because, I mean, we've mentioned some of them before, but I think there are main about three main villains that we can consider in this movie. Uh, one being the Witch of the Waste, the second being Madame Suleiman. And the third being, like, the war or the concept of war itself. Um, and so, yeah, what did you all think about these three villains? Because it's it's not really a traditional hero and villain story uh, that's happening between our protagonists and these antagonists. There are a lot, there's a lot of um, crisscrossing over. We've mentioned Madame Suleiman isn't really that uh, an antagonist in the first place uh, she's kind of indifferent to this war so yeah what did you all think about uh are the villains of our story yeah i i'll touch on the war because i think 
we've discussed the Witch of the Waits at length, and we like the way that she was kind of recon- recontextualized as a as a character as part of the family. And Suleiman, as you mentioned, kind of doesn't do too much, and then she ends the war. the The Wikipedia article on the movie, which I have been referencing, has a very good kind of small blurb that basically says, "Yes, this is a criticism of the." 2003 Iraq, Iraq War, uh, you know, America goes, sends a whole bunch of people to the Middle East and fucks around for 20 years, wasting hundreds of billions of dollars and thousands of lives and et cetera, et cetera. Um, as I had mentioned before, the general way that the movie kind of goes about displaying the war is that A, war is incredibly destructive, and B, nobody who is in, like, charge of the war, like, nobody who is high enough to be a possible, like, player in the kind of war games seems to have any reason as to why they should be going to war. Like, and there's obvious parallels with how Miyazaki feels about uh, the general lack of purpose as to why we sent troops to the Middle East in part as part of the Iraq War. Um, that all works for me, but as I had mentioned at the very beginning, I think that it really didn't... Like, it just kind of established the war as a not good presence in the context of the world, uh, but the way that they tried to have Suleiman kind of serves as that liaison between the war and Hal and Sophie, I think that that connection is weak. And I think that, you know, Iris, as you said, that doesn't make this a bad movie, and it certainly, you know, doesn't reduce my enjoyment of the movie, but it does make me feel like, well, if maybe they just put a couple more emphasizing scenes or maybe a line or two here or there where it just felt like they were wrapping the war more into the fold of how, you know, why Howell was so against both sides of the war and why he goes out in his bird form and fucks up the airships and whatever. And, you know, how Sophie, you know, how does this affect Sophie? I think that would have been a pretty cool concept to elaborate on a little bit. Maybe it would have uh, added, you know, extraneous detail that perhaps... Miyazaki didn't want to see in this movie, but I think that it would have been an interesting point considering how close she gets to Hal uh, towards the end of the movie. Yeah, Marcus, I think that you put into words what I couldn't at the beginning when I was saying that this movie doesn't feel focused and that also the movie still has something to say. I think basically to just reiterate what you said. It has a it, it like it really wants to say a strong anti-war message, and to a certain extent, it says it. But it says it, and also tells the story of Hal and Sophie. I I in the back of my brain, I guess what I wanted was more of an intertwining of the two, and I I think that's where I get, that's where I was getting at by saying it was it didn't feel as focused as it could have been. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky, right? Because I, I myself wouldn't say that I feel like the war is a focus of the film in any way. I think it is an important sort of piece of backdrop. It is an important contrast and it is an important motivator. But at the end of the day, it doesn't feel like it's a story about war. You know, even because stories can be about war, even if they are not, you know, war is not the primary focus you know, classic example I would say is Avatar The Last Airbender. I don't think anyone say would say that the story is about 
the war, but the war provides, you know, context for just about everything that happens in it, right? It is central to the movie, even if it is not the central focus at all times. In 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 this movie, the war at, at some points just is just kind of there. It's just happening in the background. At some points, it provides, I think, sort of this ideological counterpoint to what Howell's stands for what Howell represents right this this you know the the two ends of the spectrum um you know and at, at times it sort of you know like enters from stage left and serves as the you know brief kind of narrative impetus to get us to the next story beat and uh, like my gut instinct when when trying to ask myself what role does this play in the narrative my gut instinct is to say okay well and it's symbolic right it's symbolism it it, ha- it represents this concept this idea and it allows us to it you know allows them to give howl this counterbalance right like this is what howl is being compared against when we look at who he is what he represents right what his character is in essence but even though my instinct is to sort of give it that justification, I don't really think I could find sort of a self-contained idea to attach to it. You know, what what the role of the war is in the movie. Um, I'm not sure there is something quite so neat. And I'm not sure what to do with that confusion, you know? It's it's something that I think remains unresolved for me when considering this 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 film i think that you bringing up avatar the you bringing up avatar the last airbender is a really poignant thought because you're right it's not about the war however the ending like it's the ending is ang versus ozai right and the ending is ultimately the question of can or is there is there a way for Aang to stop the war without actually killing Fire Lord Orzai? Right, that's the sort of the. I mean, not even not even just the ending, right? The entire framing of the show is based around the existence of the war, right? right? When when Aang and Katara are traveling through the Great Divide, they're doing it to help a group of refugees, right? right? When they're having trouble talking to the Earth King, it's because his political cabinet has taken over and sort of turned him into a puppet in order to pre- you know, prevent him from knowing about the war. Exactly. We're so not focusing on it so much of the time, but it's there in every single episode as just this this justification for why the story is happening in the first place. And, and that's why I feel like the ending for Halloween Castle isn't that focused because the the ending of Halloween Castle ultimately is give have Calcifer give Howl's heart back. Like what part of that required the war? Right? Well, I I agree with you though. I mean, I don't think this is a story at its core, about the war. I don't think the war is crucial to the content of what is going on here. I don't think the war is crucial to the idea of I, what Howl's the Castle means. I agree, but I think that Miyazaki would disagree with you. Because <laughs> he literally said, like, this is, like, anti the Iraqi war, basically. Right? What, I, what I'll say about this is that I think they shouldn't have made... Howell's kind of anti-war effort so central to what his kind of own uh, issues are in the movie. Like, his 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 primary uh, conflict that he has to deal with is the fact that he's losing his humanity as he, go out, as he goes out 
uh, when everyone else is asleep to make these anti, you know, fuck up the war effort pretty much. And like, if that was the case, then I feel like you might have been able to wrap the war a little bit more into his development as a character towards the end and when he gets his heart back. But they didn't do that. And, you know, Iris, I see what you mean, because I, I genuinely don't think that that's what Miyazaki wanted. I think that, you know, the, the anti-war sentiment was not necessarily distinct, but it was definitely separated enough from the overall plot progression that it didn't, they, he didn't want it to feel like it was an overbearing aspect of controlling how these characters grew and did their thing through the movie. I do think that because he made that decision... Suleiman becomes a weaker character because she's the only one in this in this movie that you know doesn't necessarily like has kind of that connection to the war and therefore you feel like you could she could bring more of the war to the main characters and it also kind of makes it confusing as to why Howell is so staunchly anti-war yet also doesn't have any of that resolve towards the end. Yeah, absolutely. I think far and away the weakest moment of the film is when Suleiman is like, "Oh, hey, I guess they found the prince." Time to end the silly war, then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, what is her... I, I don't understand her. I think there's something particularly menacing about just indifference in our major antagonist. But at the same time, it's not particularly satisfying. And and I think it is kind of interesting to note that, like, the way that she kind of absentmindedly is like, okay, the war is over, is somewhat similar to the way that the U.S., you know, eventually was just like, well, we've done <laughs> oh, all we can. I'm just going to pull out of this war effort now. Like, it, you know, there's, there's a little bit of irony there. And obviously, I don't think Miyazaki could have predicted that this was the way that the war would end. But in, in a way, he was right. This was a senseless war, and it was ended just as senselessly as it began. Yeah, and you heard it here first, folks. Bestie on the couch takes a dive into punditry. <laughs> oh, God, no. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think what you all said, there, there is a balancing act that Miyazaki had to make because, I mean, this movie could have easily been a Grave of the Fire- Fireflies uh, movie where it got really depressing and sad uh, if it just focused on war. Or it could be a whimsical children's story. And... I think he did have to make some sacrifices in that regard, um, especially since, I mean, there are some scenes in the film that uh, really do highlight the the like terror and the horror of war, especially the bombs dropping on Sophie's hometown, I think, yeah. is the most uh, blatant, blatant scene in the film uh, where that happens. Uh, but it does, it does cause... Uh, the film to seem like the war is a plot point. It's just there to move the story along. It's there to make Howl confront Solomon, which then furthers both Howl's and Sophie's story and brings the Witch of the Waste into their home. Uh, so yeah, it, it does sometimes feel a little contrite. I did get that sense on on rewatching it a little bit, but I think, like I said at the beginning, because this does seem to be more of a children's story for me personally, um, I can I can so- somewhat forgive it for being more of a background, being more of the setting rather than the main focus of the story. Uh, but all right, folks, uh, that'll do it for us for this week's conversation, this week's podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This week's video that you can watch on YouTube is called The Fox and the Whale, 
by Patch of Orange. I think it has a decidedly uh, Studio Ghibli feel to it. So go check that out uh, if you're interested. But once again, thank you so much for listening, everybody. And we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone.